If you know a little bit about church history, you may know that Martin Luther, before he became the father of the Reformation, was a very devout Catholic priest. Studied Hebrew, Greek, Latin, very devoted to his studies. But with all of that, he was racked with this great burden that he carried constantly. And none of his spiritual activities, no penance, no confession, no sacrament could take away this sense of guilt. He would confess at such detail. And one time the priest said, do you have anything else to confess, Martin? And he said, yes, I can think of one more thing. At dinner last night, I noticed a slightly larger piece of bread than mine going to the priest next to me, and I confess envy that he had a larger piece. And that was the breaking point for this priest who said to him, Martin, go out and kill someone. Go out and sin so that you have something to confess. Well, somewhere in between Martin's obsession with minute inadequacies and his confessor's idea of sin, somewhere in in the middle of theirs in honesty, that we all need forgiveness. And our human efforts, even under the banner of Christianity, don't relieve us of that great burden. Finally, he was reading in Romans 1, and he came across the passage, the just shall live by faith, and slowly his eyes were opened. And he saw clearly that God forgives us, not because of anything we do, but solely on the basis of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. He called that truth the gate to heaven. So it's not surprising that Luther would eventually come to see this segment of the creed as the most important. In fact, he wrote concerning it, if it is not true, what does it matter whether God is almighty or Jesus Christ was born and died and rose again? What does it matter if there is no forgiveness of sins? These seven words, I believe, in the forgiveness of sin, are the only part of the entire creed that talks about the Christian life. We've talked a great deal, many weeks, about God the Father, and in particular, Jesus. 70% of the creed, appropriately, about the person and work of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, then the birth of the church. Next week we'll talk about future things. This is the only segment that talks about the Christian life. It all boils down to this statement, the forgiveness of sins. That's not our concept of the Christian life. Go to Amazon and search for Christian life, and you'll find books under these topics. Prayer, growing in faith, enduring hard times, spiritual gifts, spiritual growth, overcoming temptation, sharing your faith, growing in holiness. There'll be books on marriage, books for men, books for women, books on family, books on singleness, raising children, overcoming addiction, forgiving others, spiritual warfare, sex, health, the purpose-driven life, and that's just to name a few. For us, the Christian life is a broad set of ideas, but the framers of this creed boil it down to these words, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. It's as though what they want us to understand, as Luther suggests, if your sins are forgiven, (laughs) everything else is just details, (laughs) and if your sins aren't forgiven, then nothing else matters. And so that's why the question I want you to be thinking about today as we talk through this beautiful idea of grace and the forgiveness of sins is this question, are your sins forgiven? 
We're going to be in the 130th Psalm today. The primary text is verses 3 and 4. I'm going to first read those, and then we're going to back up and get the context of the whole psalm. So the 130th Psalm, I encourage you to please open your Bible or your electronic versions thereof and pull out your notes as we work through, first of all, the need for forgiveness, secondly, the hope of forgiveness, and then finally, the result of forgiveness. All of that can be found in these two verses. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are to be worshipped. Now, back to verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared or worshipped. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My hope waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I really love the message version of this, Eugene Peterson's translation, paraphrase. And I'd like us to say these two verses together today. If you, God, kept records on wrongdoings, who would stand a chance? As it turns out, forgiveness is your habit, and that's why you're worshiped. So we're going to use just these two verses and look at those three ideas. The first we're going to look at is the need for forgiveness. The way the psalmist puts it is an acknowledgement. If, O oh Lord, you kept a record of our wrongdoings, who would stand a chance? It's a rhetorical question. It's an acknowledgement of the biblical worldview that all of us are morally responsible. All of us have sinned. That idea works directly against the current Western worldview that says sin isn't something that comes from inside us. Nobody seems to figure out where it is, but none of us started it. We all start innocent, and somehow we're inflicted. We learn to become sinful. But the Bible says that we start with a broken moral compass. We are born apart from God, and that separation from God means that our moral compass is skewed. We often refer to that as a sin nature. What it really means is that we're born with a propensity to act selfishly rather than godly. I think it was Luther, actually, that described this idea of sin nature as being turned in on ourselves. And we simply act out of that self-centeredness. We're all born that way. I would love to think that everybody's born innocent, but I'm actually a parent here, so I have firsthand experience with this. <laughs> the first time all of us see our child pull a tantrum because they're not getting what they want, you're tempted to go, all right, who were they playing with today? Where did they get that from? I'll tell you where they got it from, right here. They got it from right here. I, I talk periodically about one of my favorite missionary stories, The Peace Child. Don Richardson goes to a remote area, an unreached people in Papua New Guinea, who had not been spoiled by Western culture. They had been completely isolated. If you thought there could be any place where people would start with a clean slate, 
If there's any hope to find a group of people that have managed to stay clean, it would be to a group like that. But he found a culture that treachery, murder, cannibalism were held as high virtues. I would challenge any humanist to find a single culture that has ever maintained this clean slate morally. You won't find one because it comes from within us. This is a hard thing for us, to admit our brokenness. Seems not very self-empowering, you know, and we're all about that. Why don't we admit our sins? I was thinking about this, and four ideas come to my mind. In my experience, we don't admit our sins because, first of all, we don't like the rules. In fact, it's our tendency by popular majority vote to change the rules. But God's rules are clear. And in fact, even if we ignore the whole of the Old Testament and said that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are for a different time, you would still find that universal moral code, not only in Scripture, but in most other sacred texts of other religions as well. Why is it that no matter how much we try to change the rules, we can't get out from under them? Well, the Bible says that that moral code is written on our hearts. It's part of how God created us. So whether we try to run from it, change what's on the law books of our state or our nation, that sense of what is right comes with us. That's why almost universally, you'll find the same ideas of right and wrong. It's written in our hearts. The second reason is because we don't want to come clean. We really like this idea that my problems are other people's fault. We want self-determination, we want free will, but we don't want to take responsibility for our decisions. So ultimately, we don't want free will, we want a free pass is what we want. To make any choice we want, and then when it doesn't go well, blame everybody else. We don't like to come clean and recognize that by and large, the condition of our life is our own making. That's not to say that we don't find people, and there aren't people in this room who have been victims completely innocent of horrendous, life-shattering actions of others against you. And I want to be very careful not to confuse you about that. But what I'm talking about is the general direction of our life. Ultimately, all of us, there, there is rarely a situation I have learned over the years. And when I finally got here, it brought a lot of peace and a lot of growth opportunity for me. In my last church, when I first became a senior pastor, we had a lot of growth, and it was very exciting, but we also had people upset that the status quo had been uh, messed with. And so I was the target of criticism by those folk. I, I thought I was dealing with it pretty effectively. Now as I realized, looking back, what I believed I was doing, which was just explaining myself, was actually being defensive and non-responsive. Because some of what was being said was wrong, my goal was to deny all of it. When I got to the point to recognizing that every situation, everything I find myself in, whether it's of my making or not, is an opportunity for me to see something in myself. It was tremendously liberating. It opened me up to becoming more authentic and to seize every situation, even if it's an unfair situation, as an opportunity for me to learn and to become better instead of bitter. We don't like to come clean. I venture some of you have the same impression I have about our society today. It seems like it's getting worse. Do you find that? People just immediately villainize you and go at you. And as a culture, we're unwilling to even, even think about that we've done something wrong. 
And I think it will continue to get worse the farther away we get from understanding true grace and forgiveness. And that's because, third, we like to play the victim. The fourth is, we don't like to confess our sins because we fear punishment. That if I admit it, then I'm going to have to bear up to the consequences. We picture God as this white-bearded old man in the sky that's just waiting for you to admit it so he could strike you with lightning and say, Aha! So we all have a true need for forgiveness. I came out last week as a watcher of reality television. I think that reality television actually shows more about the true nature of humanity than we want to admit. We like to say that these people are the worst of the worst. How did they find these people? I saw an interview of somebody that's done a lot of reality shows, and they said, where do you find these people? And he simply said, it's not hard. <laughs> it's not hard. Find any social group and turn your camera on. And every once in a while, throw a little situation in just so they can react. But the reaction, that's all theirs. I watch these shows. You might watch them, and you say, I'm a whole lot better than them. But you know why? Because there's no camera turned on in my house. So I think of myself as the person that you know when you see me on stage, not the person my family knows. What if there was a camera in your house? Better yet, what if there was a recorder in your head? Yeah, that's, that's the sound of conviction right over there. <laughs> we all need forgiveness, but we're afraid to admit it because we're afraid of the punishment. But that's not God. There is hope for forgiveness. And that's the second section. The psalmist goes on. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. This is a, a certainty. The Bible clearly teaches that to forgive is in God's nature. God does not delight in punishing us. He looks for chances to forgive us. In Exodus chapter 34... Moses has had an encounter with God. The children of Israel have had a huge moral failing very early on in their journey to the promised land. Uh, Moses is back up on the mountain, and God says, I'm going to kill them all. Be patient. There's more to the story. He says, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses talks God out of it. No, I don't think you can talk God out of anything. I think that somewhere in there there's a, there's a play between God and Moses that's more for Moses' good than it reveals God's intent. Because at the end of this encounter, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Let me see more of you. God sets Moses in a cleft high on that mountain, and then he walks by Moses in a way that Moses cannot actually see him physically. Now, we know that's not physically God. That's an anthropomorphism. It's God manifesting a, a physical presence of himself. But when Moses says, show me your glory, it's not what Moses sees because he's actually not allowed to see. God reveals what he sees most glorious about himself by what he says. 
Say this with me. God passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is what God chose to reveal about himself when Moses says, show me your glory. Show me what's glorious about you. This is the God that the psalmist says, but our God is full of mercy and willing. There is forgiveness with our God. Now, those of you that know Scripture know that there's more to this passage. And so, for the sake of full disclosure, he says, but I do not let the wicked go unpunished. In fact, I punish it quite completely. That's like the part in the medicine commercial on TV after the first 15 seconds when they talk about how great it is, and then for the next 45 seconds, you see all these beautiful images of happy people while all these horrific things that could happen if you take the medicine, if scales begin to grow, if a third arm begins to appear, consult a physician immediately. This is great medicine, but this is sort of like that. God says, what's most glorious about me is that I forgive, but I will not let the wicked, the unrighteous, go unpunished. What he's saying is, I'm more than willing to forgive. I'm more than willing to forgive. But if you're not willing to take that first step and admit your need for it, you're not going to be able to receive that forgiveness. And because of that, as a holy God, I'll give you what you choose. And I will respond, unfortunately, with punishment. But my heart is to forgive. Isaiah 55, verse 7, the calling to come clean before God. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, and he will freely pardon. Some of you feel very uncomfortable with this verse because it's name-calling us again. We're wicked. We're unrighteous. It's, It's uncomfortable. He also says mercy and pardon. I want you to picture two doors side by side. One of them says wicked, and the other says mercy. Or it says unrighteous versus pardon. Wicked or mercy, unrighteous or pardon. And you have to choose one of those doors. Which would you choose? I know which one I'd choose, right? Mercy. (laughs) I'd choose pardon. Picture them now as two doors on opposite ends of a hallway. And through that hallway is life to the full, freedom from the burden of guilt, everlasting life, God in all of his fullness. And the first door says wicked and unrighteous. We have to go through that door. I have to admit my brokenness in order to receive mercy and pardon. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's always been the path. But God's willing. He's looking for ways to forgive. So now, what's the result of forgiveness? We've talked about the need for it. We've talked about the hope for it. What's the result of it? Well, that's the final little phrase. Now, in your NIV or in your King James, or 
depending on which translation, what you have is this statement, therefore, you are to be feared. This is actually a declaration of joyful result. (laughs) You go, what? (laughs) Listen to the text. If God kept a record of sins, none of us would stand a chance, but with him there's forgiveness, and so we can fear him. Isn't that great? Actually, it is. Because the Hebrew word for fear is not like waiting for punishment, waiting for lightning to strike. The Hebrew word for fear is reverential awe. It's actually one of those incredible experiences. Um, I, I rarely have experiences, other than at times of worship where I've experienced this reverential awe of God, I rarely have that experience with people. But I remember about a year and a half ago, Vit and I were at a concert, a trumpeter, Chris Bodie, and he had a, a female vocalist with him who could do things with her voice that I had never heard anybody do. I was just in awe listening to her. And then she went off stage. We were watching Chris Body and his band play. And I, I just looked, and I was two seats from the side door, and she had walked through the door, and she was standing close to me. I, I got a little chill in me that I was standing close to this magnificent voice, this woman that could do something so phenomenal, better than I'd ever heard anybody do. That's reverential awe. That's that experience. So in, in Hebrew, when it says we fear God, those of us that have been forgiven don't fear God as judge. We have reverential awe for him. Imagine that God allows us to be in his presence, that we can come boldly. The God that Isaiah, before his sins, were forgiven when in Isaiah 6, he sees God high and exalted, the train of his robes filled the temple when he had that vision. What were his first words? Woe is me. Let me translate. Oh, crap. (laughs) Yeah, I, I did that in church. Apart from God's grace, it's a fearful thing, but with God's grace, look at him transformed in the very presence of God. After he receives grace, God says, now who will I send? Who will go? And it's with an exclamation point. He goes, ooh, ooh, send me. What a transformation. It's that experience that we have once we've been forgiven. Let me see what I've actually got in my notes because I was going off my notes there. The result is that we are forgiven completely and forever. The Bible describes God's forgiveness with many analogies, but let me just list a few. Isaiah 44, he's blotted out our sin like a thick cloud dissipates. Jeremiah 31, he forgets our sin and remembers it no more. Isaiah 38, he puts sin behind his back. Micah 7, 19, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea. My personal favorite, Psalm 103, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. The whole idea of God's forgiveness is that when he does it, he forgives as completely as he would otherwise judge us. He forgives us completely and forever. Secondly, when we enter into this forgiveness, we enter into a state of grace in which we are held When we come through Christ's redemptive work into relationship with God, the forgiveness is not just for acts of the past. It's a state in which we live. It's a state of grace. Excellent book, if you ever want to really be filled with the idea of this, is John Piper's book, Future Grace. It's a phenomenal book that talks about the enduring nature of God's forgiveness. And then finally, we can worship God with true joy 
and freedom. I thought about Pilgrim's Progress. How many have read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic? Pilgrim is burdened. He's carrying a burden that weighs him down, not unlike Martin Luther. Pilgrim is an everyman character. He's supposed to represent all of us. He's carrying this burden that's constantly weighing him down, but he just can't get it off. And then he has this encounter. I'm just going to read this small segment of Bunyan's story. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. The wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome. And said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks." Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him. Peace be to thee, the first one said to him. Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags, clothed him with a change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll and a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy. And went on singing, and this is what he sang. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. When we come to the cross, that burden, when Luther understood it was only by Christ's finished work, only by the grace of God and by faith received that, his burden fell off. And what was the result? Joyful praise. Joy and gladness, awe and wonder that God would become man and take that burden upon himself so that my burden of sin could be relieved. It's, it's incredible. How do we take this idea, acquire it, and live in it? Well, the first is come clean and get clean. The path for you to find life as God intended it is to not keep trying to convince yourself you're okay and everybody's okay. You're not. You never have been. You were meant to be okay. 
but you were born with a burden that Christ can remove if you're just willing to come clean about it. Come clean, confess your sin, and get clean. Be forgiven. But then I think there's a second stage. Often we can become trapped by our former sins even though they've been forgiven because we're not willing to forgive ourselves. We're still beating ourselves up about the past. If you really understand what God's forgiveness is, that it's in God's nature, it's his habit to forgive, and he has separated your former actions as far as the east is from the west, which means that they will never meet. They will never meet again. If you understand that, you should forgive yourself. I've met so many people over the years who made a tragic decision. One woman who uh, Vint and I were very dear friends with for a number of years, had these issues that she could never get past. She had such a big heart, but she kept getting trapped. And one day she just said, she confessed to us that as a younger woman, she had a pregnancy that she chose to end. She chose to have an abortion. And she'd since come to Christ, but she could never forgive herself of that. And that was affecting her relationships with her family, with church after church, because she had not fully understood that forgiveness of God in order to forgive herself and move on. You are blessed. Peace be with you. Thy sins are forgiven. And then finally, we need to forgive others. Right? That's what Paul reminds us again in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's close by this verse. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. I'd like you to close your eyes in prayer. And this is how we're going to prepare for the Lord's table. I mentioned three things in relation to living in forgiveness. The first was coming clean, and by doing that, getting clean. The second is learning to forgive yourself, and then finally, forgiving others. And I think as we prepare for the Lord's table, this great reminder of God's nature to forgive, God's willingness to find and do whatever it would take to make it possible for us to be forgiven. As we come to this table, isn't it right for you to first, if necessary, get right with God, to come clean? Maybe you've been approaching this whole Christian thing, saying, I'm going to get there by never really admitting it's about sin. I'm just going to make it about being good and following Jesus. You're Christian before the cross. You're Luther before grace. You need to come clean. You can leave here today free of your burden by simply admitting, confessing your sin, and receiving God's forgiveness that was made possible through Christ. I encourage you to do that right now as we pray silently. And if you do it, you have this promise, God will forgive. I think some of you in this room have things that haunt you. I'd like to encourage you to free yourself from that. Christ does not condemn you. It's been forgotten forever. The only reason it's still in your life is because you're holding on to it. It's not holding on to you anymore. Let go of it. Forgive yourself. And then finally, who in your life right now represents someone that you need to extend grace and forgiveness to? You're not living out this forgiveness as we're taught to, that you're harboring bitterness. Who in this room, perhaps, do you need to go up to right after the service and make things right? Forgive as in Christ God forgave you. 
hoop do you need to call when you go home and get things right with grab a cup of coffee, clear things up. You may think you're the victim. It doesn't matter. You may be the one that caused the pain. Either way, be a peacemaker. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Take that act and make things right. If there's someone that comes to mind right now, confess the need for that so that you can celebrate the Lord's table free and clear. And now this is how we're going to come into communion. I have never done this before, but if you look up now, you'll find Romans 8.1 on the screen. Practice it once with me. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So what is the result of forgiveness? Joyful worship. What did Christian do? He leaped three times. Here's what we're going to do to come into communion. We're going to celebrate with joy that we are forgiven. We are going to say this verse five times. We're going to say it louder each time until by the fifth time we're losing our voices. Then we're all going to jump. Once is fine. We're going to jump up and we're going to give the biggest ovation to grace and forgiveness that we have ever given anyone. Can you do that with me? Well, there's three of you. (laughs) Is there anything more deserving of our praise and adoration and rejoicing? Nothing. I'll bet you some of you have lost your voices at Red Sox games and Patriots games and your kids' soccer games. Let's double that right now. You ready to try it? You're sitting back a little too relaxed to be ready for this. Come on. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now there is no condemnation to those who belong in Christ Jesus. Now there is no condemnation to those who belong in Christ Jesus. Now there is no condemnation to those who belong in Christ Jesus. Woo! Woo!